Welcome today to the Corsight Podcast. I am Deborah Weinswig, CEO and founder of Corsight Research. Today, we are going to talk about the opportunities for 2021, even though I know the 20 has not, you know, we've all gone down a different path than we expected, but we look at the opportunities around discovering new markets, discovering new technologies, and also how to utilize the data that we have with the, you know, this idea of quant and qual, and then this kind of overlay around social listening. And so we feel that we are moving in the right direction. All, you know, all thumbs are up as we go into 21. And it will be, I am sure, I'm not sure if it's going to be the roaring 20s, but I do think that there are a lot of opportunities, especially as we all put our heads together and collaborate. Thanks for joining me today. So, you know, when I left Wall Street, which was back in 2013, a bit unexpected as my mother became ill while I was at a Walmart analyst meeting and I left, I I did make it out of the, uh, I made it out of the airport to go see a store and then went back to the airport and I did go back to Bentonville again. I never went back to to Citigroup again. And and while I was there, I, I realized, you know, how much, how passionate I was about retail technology, having, you know, kind of met Scott Friend, who was the founder of Profit Logic back in 02. I remember when he came through my office door, all six foot four of him, uh, you know, dressed in like jeans and a button down, which was definitely not the uh, kind of protocol for Wall Street at that time. And he talked about this idea of, right, like markdown optimization, which at the time was, you know, I, I'd say cutting edge tech for retail. And, and he likened it to the kind of filings basement model, which, you know, having family growing up in, in Boston, I spent a lot of time in filings basement, right? So for those of you who don't know, right, they, they would have, it was, you know, basically a, a physical like wooden sign that, you know, kind of hung down, you know, from many of the aisles. And it would say, right, if product had been there for, for 15 days, it was X percent off and, and whatnot. And, and the idea was, right, that they cleared everything in a certain amount of time at a certain markdown, right? Right. It was all prescriptive. And, you know, what Profit Logic did was try and take that same logic into, you know, stores where they would, you know, because, right, what would happen with buyers, it's like, no, 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 just give it a few more weeks, right? The reason it's not selling, it's not the color, it's not the style, it's the weather, right? Or, you know, the, the there's been a shift in terms of, you know, kind of spring break. That's always my favorite, right? Or prom. And, and so they just utilized, which worked incredibly well, uh, you know, kind of, prescriptive analytics to help retailers better understand when to mark down product to do it, you know, every product, whether it was, you know, kind of by geo, by, you know, kind of different demographic groups uh, at the same time and, and prove to be incredibly successful. So I had been, you know, let's just say informally advising a company called Profitect while I was at City because you couldn't, you know, kind of formally be engaged. And we took them around, we introduced them to the clients, that type of thing. And so when I unexpectedly left left Wall Street, I called three companies who I had this kind of very informal like advisory relationship with them. And one was Guy Chayev from Profitech. And I said, you know, I'm I'm at home, uh, you know, kind of with my parents. My mom was actually on a um uh, respirator. And, you know, I, I needed to stay there until she was better. And he's like, well, I have an opening for a chief customer officer. Would you like to join? I'm like, I have no idea what that is, but sure, let me do it. And it ended up being probably the best decision I ever made because not only did it, you know, I'd been talking about startups and writing about startups, but now I was working in a startup and they were, I think I was the, the 38th, um, hire 
And while the the retail community had at least uh, an understanding of what the the technology was, this you know, so they they also uh, you know prescriptive predictive analytics. I think today we'd call it AI, um, but it was utilizing ingesting huge amounts of data. And looking at patterns and, you know, because that's all the company did, right? They did it incredibly well. And, you know, there was one retailer was fast. I mean, there's so, there's so many good stories, uh, but, you know, keeping the, the retailers anonymous one where I, I still was, I, I still to this day and it's, you know, already seven years later, I was shocked where we found, you know, we had video cameras and we could see all these, you know, customers outside of the stores, like banging on the doors. It was one of the, the largest drugstore retailers in the United States and the world. And what we found is when we you know, started to ingest some of the data is that the hours on the website versus the hours on the doors were not the same. So, right, customers go to the website. Okay, the drugstore opens at seven, right? My husband, my wife, my kid, my something has a fever. I need to kind of you know, go in and, and you know, get Tylenol or whatever it might be, some kind of fever-reducing medicine. And, and so they show up and right, and then drugstore didn't open until eight o'clock. And so there's literally their pattern. Well, the website said this, the doors say this. And what we found is it's like, it was like 65,000 hours in a year that were mismatched and, you know, with it ultimately impacting, you know, kind of the, the customer. And so to me, then starting to see this and this ability to change, right. For a, a very small, you know, amount of, you know, in some ways effort, but this, the dollar amount that the retailers were spending with us wasn't that much when you thought about, what ended up happening on the other side. And so I, I then, you know, kind of ended up joining a large supply chain company, which was also very early on in its data and kind of technology journey. And what we started to see, right, from, from supply chain, if you think of where we are now in 2020, and, and supply chain is at the heart of every conversation, was just this idea around right the you know kind of how far back in the supply chain could we go with with tech right because for for many of you who who haven't been involved right still much of what's being done is through faxes right where where orders are faxed back and forth and you know there's the whole kind of QA element there is the kind of traceability element and and much of this is still very uh, very manual and you know what we started to see is this you know kind of this whole kind of industry popping up around, you know, it was really kind of technical design and right companies like Optitex and Browseware and, and Clo and, and Tuca. And, and this idea, right, that, that we could start to take a design, right, where if you think about it from a sustainability perspective, which really for me personally is, is incredibly important in everything that I do, we, we found that, right, if, if you think of, right, from, from concept to shelf, right, is can be 12, 14, even 18 months. And if we could not only compress that for, you know, the reason that the the retailer could basically make their decision to order a product closer to when they understood the demand, but also if many more people had had their eye on this design, it would be more successful. And so what we ended up kind of putting in place was this entire like almost digital supply chain, right? And so if the the retailer, the brand could could design in 3D and then right, they could work with a partner, whomever that partner might be, and and iterate it back and forth. And so literally while while the retailer brand was sleeping, then the, you know, kind of the this company was, you know, kind of rendering these designs. And that's and just the thing is, right, this whole kind of the there's like rendering farms, like the compute power needed to do this is is truly astronomical. 
But this idea that we then at the, you know, our clients when I was at Liam Fung and now, you know, I guess technically our clients at Corsite, but as they were looking at these designs, right, they became increasingly, you know, improved, right? Because more, right, you know, whether it was the, you know, kind of the zippers, the buttons, right, the, uh, and then even just, you know, I mean, one of my favorites was we were doing a lot of graphic tees for someone and they, right, they changed the, it was like a hot dog and they changed the amount of like relish and ketchup and mustard. And it was amazing, right? Because just some of the things that you would never think would, would really matter in like the customer's eye, the, the sell-through that we had, right, in these graphic tees is more, you know, kind of more, more constituents had a voice. It, it really drove, I mean, it's, it's logical, but it just hadn't been, been done before. And, and, and I found that to be incredibly inspirational where we could, you know, there was existing tech, we could utilize it in new ways and, and really have retailers be much more involved in the decision-making process and have it right where some of these conversations would take, you know, 12, 15 weeks. We were doing it in five days. I mean, when you think about that, that's, it's invaluable. And that was, you know, kind of a lot of, you know, the thinking while I was at Lee and Fung was around this idea around kind of technical design and, and also body shapes and sizes. And, and we took that into our, you know, our work at CoreSight where in 2018, we, we uh, had the opportunity to host a very large conference on inclusive design. And we did that. Uh, Alvinon came to us. We were, we were very honored to be their partner and what we started to really understand was there's this huge market for, I mean, extended sizes, right? We, we already knew that. We, we had heard that from many retailers, especially during my career on Wall Street, who were, were very frustrated that they didn't have the right product that that, that customer desired and, and they, they were struggling. And, and a lot of times it didn't exist, right? They were having to design it themselves. And, you know, understanding the opportunity in this market where if we just look at, you know, off-the-shelf data, right? One thirds of Americans are over, you know, are, are obese, and and two thirds are overweight. You know, it's a, you know, it's an opportunity to not only drive body positivity, but you know, when you think about just the dollars and cents of it, and and another area that we've focused on really that has been uh, an, inc- you know, a significant component of what Corset has done is around a, the adaptive market. And and what is adaptive, right? You know, does that mean anything to anyone? It does mean something to a certain, you know, kind of subset of the U.S. population, which are those people with with disabilities. And, you know, this idea that, right, the, the apparel has then been kind of adapted to to work for them, their lifestyle, their their body shape and size. And, you know, what's what's amazing is in 2020, the you know kind of continuing this this huge event that we did in 2018 where we we literally ran out of food and water at the the conference we put on because so many people showed up because if you look at the global adaptive market it's like a 100 billion dollar market and it's you know and we've seen some companies do things you know look at Zappos right they have and it sounds simple but it's just not right you can now buy shoes in two different sizes you can buy one shoe, right? If you only have one leg, you only need one shoe. And, you know, there, there's this idea around driving awareness and having, you know, kind of companies design. So, right, Tommy Hilfiger has done a great job with this. Kohl's, Target, we've seen many retailers, but there's so many more. And, and the size of the market is, is very significant. We had an opportunity in 2020 to get involved with the New York City's um, mayor's office uh, for people with disabilities. And during, you know, kind of the, the ADA, uh, the, um, had a, you know, kind of anniversary 
And we were, we, we spun up uh, <laughs> a week, but I think that that's been the, you know, 2020 for many of us, uh, an entire press conference to help, you know, people really in the New York area, but even, even uh, more, uh, I would say, globally than that, you know, first of all, throughout the U.S. and globally, understand what does the ADA do, right? The Americans with Disabilities Act. It was the the 25th year anniversary. What did that mean? And why did, you know, why did we see this, um, kind of this kind of movement, right? What was the 25th anniversary? What was the 30th anniversary? And why did it matter, right? What were we actually trying to accomplish? And I think it was raising awareness, but also how could, you know, how could different agencies work with the mayor's office? How could we just, just raise awareness in terms of, of what this was and, and why it mattered? And, and so what ended up taking place, so that was kind of my first opportunity uh, to kind of help around like the, the ADA 25 and then the ADA 30 uh, this year in July. And as we started to, of course, I dig into some of the challenges that were present specifically during COVID, specifically during the crisis, the pandemic, is that many of these people who were housebound, you know, they had caretakers coming in who didn't necessarily have the right PPE. They, in the city of Los Angeles, where meals were being delivered, they were having to curtail meal delivery because, you know, people didn't have proper PPE to go into the homes. And so you were literally at risk of people not having enough to eat because of PPE. And I, I will tell you, we we worked with some amazing companies, right? Microsoft helped us, Salesforce, in terms of thinking about how to like, we we ended up, uh, you know, at, at Coresight and also a charity I founded early in the pandemic called Retailers United, we were able to pull together uh, excess PPE and get it into the city of Los Angeles and truly make a difference, right? And And it was just right? If I hadn't had the opportunity to speak to the New York City Mayor's Office, to participate in the ADA 30, to be a part of starting Retailers United, to get to be involved in Empowered Cities. And what Empowered Cities is, it's, it's, it's several cities who have come together. And what they you know, are trying to do is to help you know, those people and those markets um, not only drive awareness, but but get access to whether, I mean, technology is absolutely critical. So whether it's as simple as Wi-Fi, laptops, phones, and then being trained on that technology because it's so important in terms of the the future of, you know, kind of what these, you know, people can do from an employment perspective. And, you know, Empowered Cities is a truly a landmark initiative to advance, right, financial inclusion and economic opportunity for, you know, kind of some of these lower income people with disabilities. I mean, the, the unemployment rate amongst these folks in the New York area is 79%. I mean, it's just, it, it actually, I, I feel this, the shiver go through my body when I even say that. And so these cities that came together, Boston, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, all under the leadership, of the New York city mayor's office for people with disabilities really, um, has been an offer, you know, an honor to, to be involved with. And this idea that these cities are kind of looking out for each other, helping to, like we said, like even just transport PPE, but also to get, to get meals to people, to get people employed. And so I, I started to, to recently, uh, reach out and help, you know, I'm on the board of Goodwill and, you know, what Goodwill does is we work with, you know, kind of people with disabilities, ex-convicts and help them not only kind of train up, 
but also to find employment within the Goodwill stores. Really, a lot of you know the Goodwill stores is, is to have a training ground for people to learn new skills and whatnot. And I've seen you know stories that would you know kind of really you know break your heart in terms of how you know people have been trained up. They've you know kind of it's instilled self confidence and also you know a way to keep them you know to to be able to to afford right the basics of like housing, food, and, you know, and, and their own apparel. And, and it has all been through, through some of these initiatives. And so t- taking it back to retail, right? This is a huge business, right? The, these markets, right? For, for people with disabilities and, and how to get involved, not only from a business perspective, because it's the design of the product, right? We've got to de- design product for this customer. This customer, we also need them to speak up, but we also have to be able to find this customer. And, and what we're seeing is, right, these, the empowered cities, uh, the New York City mayor's office has just been so generous in time that they spent with us at CoreSight to better understand this opportunity so that we can then go in and speak to the retailers about it. And what we're finding is, whether it's a multi-brand retailer or vertically integrated, this is an, an area that they're very excited about as they, they look at, at 2021 because it's a, it's a, truly a category that's that's growing. I mean, all of this, you know, the this kind of inclusivity, this wonderful conversation that we've had in in 2020 and as that moves into 2021 and whether that's employing people with disabilities, it's making product for people with disabilities, it's helping them get PPE and other items that they need during the pandemic, during the crisis. It's it's really unbelievable and sometimes right it's just taking a step back and, and scratching the surface. And right, we never know, right? I mean, if we all think about our own careers, we never know how we're going to get from point A to point B, right? I mean, I started off as an accountant, as a CPA, working at PricewaterhouseCoopers. And I had this, you know, kind of incredible, insatiable interest in understanding, right? I was on what they call the, the garbage team. It was probably not very nice. But what our team did is we had all different kinds of clients, right? Anyone from a sporting goods company to an aluminum manufacturer to, you know, I mean, you named it. I had I, 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 like, I had the opportunity to, uh, to audit and to do planning for a company that was um, uh, basically... They were in the the business of uh, procuring uh, meat for the you know kind of quick service restaurants and and what I learned about that industry was was truly fantastic and actually caused me to become a vegetarian but that's that's probably a, a whole nother series of uh, pescatarian I guess a whole nother series blood literally was running down the wall of where we were where we were auditing um, the but but you know if you if you think about kind of where we where where we start but I you know, being an, an auditor, I was an incredibly detail oriented person. And right. It was like dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's and doing that like five times. And then, you know, having this opportunity post post business school to go to wall street, right. Where we're building financial models and right. Paying attention to the details. That is all that it's about. And it's, and it's interesting, right. Because it's not just the numbers. It's also when you go to a store, looking at what's in people's carts, right. Making a mental note, or you can write it down or leave yourself a, a voice message and, and looking at the cars in the parking lot and doing that over and over and over. And now, right, this, this, you know, we, so we talk about, right, at CoreSight, right, we, we do, right, we've got the, you know, detailed models and tons of data. You then layer on this, this qualitative aspect. But now social listening has, I would say, helped us make much better, much more informed decisions, but also picking up trends before retailers are aware of them. Right, because we're then able to do right this triangulation, and sometimes right brands in certain markets are 
you know, way ahead of where they, we would think that they would be. And sometimes it's either a leading or a lagging indicator, but also understanding that and, and helping these companies kind of trying to figure out where, where to focus. And, and much of it goes back to right where this conversation started, which is around, you know, kind of predictive, prescriptive analytics, understanding the, you know, kind of, um, utilizing AI to, to look at trends and data. And then how does the supply chain, right? You know, not only making enough of a product, but to make it like the best, right? Your best graphic tee so that we don't have waste, that we we're having the sustainability conversation really early on. I mean, it was interesting. We were talking to a large technology company about themes and you know, that we wanted to cover for 2021 and we had sustainability and supply chain, two different buckets. And they're like, isn't it the same bucket, right? Don't you need a, you know, kind of a sustainability overlay or foundation around supply chain so that we can all make better products, make less of products that the customer isn't going to want to buy and, you know, do it with, with less water. I mean, right. The average pair of jeans, you know, requires 1500 gallons of water. I mean, it's, it's truly unbelievable you know, some of the, the impact that we can have if we take a step back and, you know, think about the, the data implications of the decisions that we're making, but also how to, you know, how to utilize data in some of those, in some of those decisions. The, you know, the other area that, you know, we also have found during uh, 2020 that has been interesting is, the the merchandising you know kind of execution gap if you will because oftentimes we're not finding right the the out of stocks cost a lot of money right and then the inability to implement the you know kind of programs that the CPG companies have have basically paid to to have impacted and and if we look at some of this you know kind of merchandising execution you know getting the the store teams right especially if you think about you know kind of essentials right food and drug stores are are the store teams getting instructions from headquarters and 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 how are they reviewing them and you know how right from a from a visual merchandising perspective how is this all kind of coming into play right are we seeing correct you know, execution of, of the, these programs and, and what kind of touch bases are being done. And, and if we go back to right demand forecasting, right, making sure we're, we're ordering enough of the, the product and, and why I bring this up, right. This whole idea around, you know, kind of merchandising intent and, and merchandising execution and, and the gap that's there. And, and also the, the solutions that are available to, to fix that. The, you know, we, we actually, we recently met with a company called Wondor. I mean, I love the, I love the name, but this idea of kind of improving, you know, kind of transparency and, and communication and, and then being able to, you know, kind of take action, right? There's, there's nothing more important than that. But, but the, what's interesting, right? Walgreens announced today that they're rolling out a new loyalty program. And right in this loyalty program, right, you get, you know, kind of a greater percentage back of your purchase if you buy their own brand versus if you buy, you know, kind of a nationally, um, you know, national brand, CPG. And what we're finding is that, you know, the customer's brand loyalty or brand, brand love, I'll call it that, you know, during this, you know, this year, right, they just want to make sure that they're able to buy black beans. They don't care about the brand, right? They don't care because there, there has been this whole like panic buying and, and, 
and I dare you, I don't like the word hoarding, but let's just say panic buying and, and having, you know, just enough to to feed their families and to feel secure. I think there's this whole idea. I mean, we're now seeing, right, because of some of the challenges around this holiday, we're seeing panic gift buying, right? Because there's there's fears over distribution centers and warehouses shutting down as we go into the, the end of this year, which is, I mean, words I never, I never would have heard, thought I'd hear myself say that there's going to be panic buying around holiday gifts. Who would have ever said that? That's crazy, right? But we're seeing it. And then what we're also seeing now is the, the CPG companies are looking to sell direct, right? Direct to consumer, right? Not only do they want the data, it all goes back to data, right? They want the data to understand how their customers are shopping. And they also want to see if somebody doesn't buy something, why didn't they buy it, right? You know, your, your friends over at Amazon, they're not sharing that data with you. And so how do you know how to how to have better looking product? I mean, better looking, right? Your packaging, right? I mean, for for holiday, I mean, I, I you know, as, as someone who spent much of my time helping U.S. companies go to, to China to onto the Chinese platforms, right? Where so much of it's about the packaging and the look, right? We already know the product is a darn good product, but, but much of it is about, and it can be even bundling, right? Do we have, right, you know, uh, a toothbrush and, and toothpaste and floss all in the same package with like this lovely wrap on the outside, the, the increase in sell through that, that, you know, gives you. And so the CPG companies, right? Many of them, well, all of them, right, are selling in China and they have this data and they have seen, right, that they make, you know, very, right, whether it's a flavor, right? It could be, you know, the, the, my favorite, well, one of my favorite products, right, is the, the, uh, vanilla Listerine that I, I can only, you know, buy there. And then the spicy Snickers, right? The spicy Snickers, right? When I go to China, right, I like fill up my, my bag and bring them back. But this idea, right, that we're, um, making subtle changes that lead to outside sales or even, you know, things that are going completely viral. And so for the, the CPG companies to have that data, to make better decisions, to have better sell through, to have a customer who then loves the, the product, right, doesn't get better than that. And then, and what we're seeing now, right, is that a lot of these grocers, you know, supermarkets, drugstores, they're doing much more of their own product. Why? Because they know that they can be in stock and then they can experiment and see if they can offer product to the consumer that, that they really want and they love. I mean, so much of it too right now is around packaging. I mean, I love Kroger has, I mean, and once again, going back to the right sustainability and extending the shelf life of product, right? Kroger's put in place, I mean, it seems really simple, but almost like the Ziploc equivalent and right they're they're potato chips, right? So your potato chips don't get stale. I mean, even if you were like binder clipping the entire bag, right? Air is getting in and the life of that product, once it's opened, it has, has declined, decreased, uh, degraded. But if you can have like a better bag, right? I mean, it sounds so incredibly simple, but it does make a huge difference. And so I, I love to find like, you know, new products. I mean, whether it's, you know, different ways to, you know, if you take a, um, a product that is right, a huge bag of trail mix and put it into like these snack packs, right? We've seen retailers do this and brands do this with, with incredible success. And so I, I'm on a journey right now to, to look at product for, for 21, especially on the, in the CPG space where, where I think I'm on this whole kind of like brand discovery. I mean, one thing that we learned, right. Coming off of double 11 is right. Product with that's CBD infused, it's CBD, if you will, kind of, um, there, there's a passion there and whether it's, you know, kind of, um, you know, in, you know, body creams, oils, uh, different kind of anything that's around like kind of pain-free, we could not, those companies that we helped go to China that sell those products. Uh, so a great example was a company called uh, Uncle Bud's. They literally right there, their sell-through, I think, you know, even like rock their mind. Now they have uh, Michael Johnson as a spokesperson for them. So they, they do have a celebrity, but it's just a, and it was like the packaging was great. The product was great. The messaging was great. 
And I feel that, you know, as we look out to next year, not only will we continue to see some really interesting innovations in the you know, kind of CPGs and, and what they offer, but also what the, the retailers are doing. And to have more of, and, and then the retailers too, right? I mean, starting to create their own marketplaces, right? So that they have all of this data themselves and they can make better decisions around what they're selling, the markets that they're selling in. I mean, and, and selling it online, right? I mean, it's, to me, these are brands. And, and I think having the, the retailers think about that, that their own private label, right, deserves marketing, deserves, uh, maybe it's an influencer or a key opinion leader or putting in place like a key opinion customer program, right? Because, you know, right now in the US to convert, to, to buy, it's about four touch points. In China, it's 12 because there are so many more channels through which we're, we're getting information and data. And, and I think some of this goes back to this idea of the KOCs, right? The key opinion customers and, and what they can do and, and how they can do it. Influencers, right? Live streaming, live streaming, which is still very much in its infancy here in the, the US, right? And, you know, and, and we, we feel that, you know, you don't need to necessarily engage with a celebrity, right? It's using your, your store associates, right? Have your CEO, right? Tell the, the, the history of the brand, right? Customers want to know about the heritage, right? How did you decide to come up with this, this product, right? And, and, and what is it about your store that, that you know, not only makes me feel safe, but, but special and, and really kind of connects me back to the brand? And so I think that, that live streaming, especially in your store, right? Creating these events, right? To give the customer a reason to come in. Hey, I want to see, I want to see this live streaming and I want to understand how it's done. And, and, and this idea that, you know, these live streamers have all this data, on how to kind of change their their pitch, if you will, in real time, make it more value oriented, tell you more about the the product, because we're also too on this 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 knowledge quest right now. And I think understanding products that not only you know kind of reverberate with our are consistent with our values, but also why, whether is this is this a brand that you know was the you know is this kind of a, a minority led brand? Is this, is this a brand that, you know, kind of has had its, its inspiration from a certain kind of charitable element? I mean, these things, in my opinion right now are, are really kind of changing how consumers are, are purchasing and, and what they're purchasing and, and kind of like why they're, why they're purchasing. And, you know, one, one other thought is if we uh, look at some of the data around, consumers, you know, kind of purchasing this year and, you know, kind of thinking about, you know, the holiday, we have holiday sales up, you know, kind of 5%. Uh, that's our, and we're looking at holiday this year longer, right? So October 1st to, to 1231. But the kind of, um, the amount that, you know, kind of consumers in the, the, I would say, uh, the fluctuation, you know, we do a survey at Corsite, a holiday survey now in terms of how much people are expecting to to spend and you know those who kind of expect to spend you know more than last year it's amazing how in the most recent survey which was November 10th it's been the you know kind of one of the greatest you know metrics that we've seen uh since kind of the the beginning of the uh the pandemic and then in terms of you know kind of what consumers are spending on and and what they're spending less of, right? If we if we look at it's fascinating the the amount of wealth 
that's been created not only from the stock market, but also from, from people's homes, right? The consumer does feel wealthier. They do feel better, right? They are outspending, you know, as long as we can keep, right, you know, stores and distribution centers open, we think this is going to be one of the best holiday seasons on record. Yes, there's pent up demand, but there, there's also this idea around, you know, kind of new products, product innovation. Now, some of what we're also seeing is that retailers haven't been able to get their product on time. So they have gone out and they've gone to liquidators to, to bring in new product or product that they never plan on selling, but, but it's there now and it's selling well. They've pulled forward some of them, right, who had packed away merchandise from a year ago. They're now selling that. And then in other cases, they're pulling forward their, you know, some of their own deliveries. Uh, you know, if they've been lucky enough to get kind of even uh, some of their, if you will, um, you know, kind of cruise or what we might call uh, early, early spring. And that, you know, we're starting to see show up in some stores as well. And then as, you know, one other thing to think about, right, returns this year are going to be unfortunately off the charts, right? It is this dirty little secret uh, of retail, the the percentages of returns, and when a uh, you know when a transaction is a digital first transaction, right? When it, it so it could start you know, it starts online, and it may culminate in the store, right? Buy online, pick up in store, curbside pickup, um, or it could be you know kind of a traditional e commerce transaction where the or the product is delivered to you, because right the the amount of of images or or PDPs that that we have, it, we don't get to see, right, there's not a lot of unboxing, right? That's not kind of typical in terms of, of what we're seeing. Maybe oftentimes, right, it's one image. I mean, heck, I'm trying to like find the calories on a product. I can't even do that. Or, right, like I have celiac, I, I can't even find like the ingredients because you literally get the front page of the, you know, the front face of the, the product. I'm like, how can a consumer make a knowledgeable purchase based on that? They can't. And that's why, right, we see return rates, right, upwards of 40%. I mean, it's truly, it's, it's truly unbelievable. And so, you know, going back to China where it's about 9%, you know, you may have, right, 16 PDPs, right, the, these images and, and this explanation and about what you're buying so that, you know, when you buy it, it's like, wow, not only is this exactly what I thought, it's so much better than what I thought. And so I think that this, you know, there, there are many companies right now, um, Newmine is one of them uh, who's a you know who who we've been very impressed with. They have this you know technology technology called the Chief Returns Officer, right? So that they can do a better job of of mitigating returns. And and to us, right, it's it's so incredibly important to to look at this you know kind of tech, these technologies because you know this this sustainability aspect of of mitigating returns right around returns reduction is probably one of the most you know the easiest things in our opinion to you know kind of to take place and you know 80% of first time customers that experience a return um you know will will not you know kind of return that to that retailer to shop and so that's those are some kind of like crazy numbers. And, you know, also this idea of like revenue leakage from returns can be up to 30%, right? Like in some segments. So I, I think that this, this idea, right, this, this opportunity, this, this, you know, kind of problem, this, this, this way to kind of be more sustainable, to not only drive better top line, bottom line, and to be sustainable in the process, right? If we can, you know, kind of reduce returns, but I, I think there's so many, I, I understand why it's so challenging for retailers this year, right? Because the, you know, the, the pace of change and the amount of items kind of on the to-do list 
it didn't really get get shorter. It only got longer. And, you know, it was almost right, like everything kind of bubbled to the top, right? We've got to fix our, you know, kind of, you know, digital design process because we aren't going to be shipping goods back and forth, right? We have to figure out, right, how to kind of improve the the retail and merchandising execution because, right, we, we've got to, you know, kind of do what we promised the the vendors that we would do. And, and we have to do it kind of in, incredibly quickly. And so I, I've been really impressed by what retailers have done around last mile and whether that's, you know, kind of a, a digital first into the, the physical store for, for curbside pickup or, or delivery. It, it's really been unbelievable. And I found that, you know, other words I never thought I'd be um, saying, right, the, the relationships, the, the powerful kind of bonds between landlords and tenants that we also have seen just to help drive this kind of BOPUS and curbside where they've, you know, in parking lots, they're allocating spots for these customers, for these transactions to take place has been, you know, kind of truly a beautiful thing. So I, I just want, you know, kind of the, the message from today to be, because we, we covered a lot of ground, right? There are huge opportunities in retail today, right? Around inclusive design, right? These are markets that we still don't have product for, right? Whether it's extended sizes, whether it's, you know, kind of product for people with disabilities and adaptive, gender fluidity, gender neutral. But but these are markets, I mean, we like I said, we have sized this adaptive market at $100 billion globally. That's a big market, right? And, and we don't have enough product. We're just starting to scratch the surface. And then as we think about, right, the decisions that we're making and, and you know, those that that we're helping, you know, kind of retailers and brands make it core site, having right kind of that that quantitative that data layer, then the the qualitative on top, and and then social listing, we're seeing you know much better decision making and faster, right? That's the other aspect is right. We can all be drowning in data, and then if we think about right some of the the technologies that that are available to us, right? Whether it's you know kind of prescriptive predictive analytics, whether it's this ability to kind of reduce returns. I mean, it's it's truly amazing, you know, what we're seeing. And I would say, uh, you know, some of the conversations that we're having as it goes into next year, and and those conversations involve, right, you know, kind of CPG companies having their own platforms, retailers as platforms, the you know, kind of the idea around how to kind of really, I mean, personalize interactions for customers and loyalty, right? This idea around loyalty and gamification. So, you know, and loyalty and gamification can be the the same conversation, but certainly ones that are important to have. So we we feel that it will be a good holiday season. Uh, you know, certainly things need to stay open for that to happen, but we saw a lot of ingenuity uh, during the, the prior lockdown. And this opportunity to kind of do the most with what you have and then to think about partnering and collaborating, you know, especially as it relates to right this Empowered Cities initiative that uh, Corsite was able to get involved with, and and we just you know we volunteered our time and our efforts to help with like the ADA thirty press conference because there there's so much that we can learn, and you know we already I, I mean our our learnings this year around how to help who to help and and how to connect retailers and brands into that to to you know kind of create products that haven't been there before, but also to think about how to meet the consumer where they are. That to us is what will make a difference in those retailers who make it and those who struggle as we enter 21. We are very excited to have with us today, Justin Hochberg, 
entertainment mogul extraordinaire. Welcome, Justin. Thanks, Deb. What a fantastic time to be here. It's the holidays, and I can't think of more moguldom than being with you. (laughs) I appreciate that. So, you know, one of the things we wanted to talk about is how are retailers approaching this idea of entertainment as it you know relates to shopping and what we're seeing this year, especially as uh, let's just say maybe it hasn't been as fun to go shopping as it has in the past. Well, that's a great question. Uh, how much time do we have? Because I've got a pie chart that I'm staring at, which probably wouldn't be very fun to look at on a podcast, but I could jump right in there. Um, I think the general trend over the last couple of years, which you have seen as a retail expert, is that people want experiences. Uh, there are a lot of studies that show millennials value experiences over objects. And so you've started to see retail, whether it's the Caruso developments like the Grove in LA, where they're programming the green or the Westfield malls that have been renovated, trying to like physically program their spaces and then retailers themselves trying to create environments, much like 20 years ago when Starbucks put couches and music or Barnes yeah. & Noble lets you sit around. That was programming. So those were early iterations of it. And then the experience economy hit. And of course, now live events or being in presence of people has sort of decimated. So where does that leave us now? And I think the answer is, if you look at all the developments that are happening on the, you know, how we went from Zoom, which is a very flat experience to all the add-ons, if you look at live streaming sales, everybody I have spoken to, whether it's Pepsi or retailers or entertainment people, everybody thinks or wants to be in the entertainment business. Nobody is selling products, people are selling the entertainment experience that you would enjoy. That's the general trend that I'm seeing across the board, whether you're talking about TikTok stars or Pepsi. No, I think that's a very good point. And it's also very interesting what we're seeing in the US from a live streaming perspective, where we're estimating the size of the industry this year is only $5 billion versus $125 billion in China. And what people define as live streaming and the experience here, I mean, it's, you know, you're really, for the most part right now, taking QVC and HSN and, and bringing that, you know, kind of into a digital device. The And we've talked to many companies and mall operators who define live streaming as directing, having right an influencer or a KOL, key opinion leader, direct customers to the physical store. And I'm like, if that's what you want to call live streaming, you go right ahead. But the idea is, right, there's this whole social commerce aspect and you're actually able to buy off the live stream. So you develop your relationship with this live streamer, with this KOL. And many times, right, the best case scenario is when they're customer service associates, right, when they work for the retailer and you start to determine, because I I know, Justin, you feel the same way, that the what we're going to see in 21 as it relates to store closures, because, right, there's been all these retailers hanging on and we haven't seen the bankruptcies like I think we're going to see. You're going to need those live streamers in those boxes because there's not going to be a heck of a lot else. I don't know what you think. I think you're absolutely right. And listen, here's the problem. I started working on interactive shopping in 1998 when Microsoft, where I worked out of business school, acquired Web TV, which for those of you who don't know what it was, it was a set-top box that enabled the web experience, which was at that point relatively new, to be able to be projected on your TV and you could actually shop on your TV, right? You could go to neimanmarcus.com and, you know, 
sort of scroll around and do that. Um, and we had visions of, you know, metadata tags being on every product that you'd see in the Friends episode that you'd be able to buy. So people have been talking about shoppable commerce uh, for yeah. a very long time. In fact, there's a little known executive named Jerry Levin, who in the 1970s did a Time Warner trial for shoppable TV. So for almost 50 years, people have been talking about sort of melding commerce and content. And it's actually shockingly remarkable that America is so backwards, forgetting against China just in general, that we have not put the infrastructure in there. I mean, today you now have obviously platforms like TikTok and YouTube talking about this, but why this wasn't baked into the ecosystem, like on Amazon, I'm a TV producer. I sell TV shows. Amazon has no ads, but the there has been a separation between church and state, between selling toilet paper and fashion items on Amazon.com and integrating that programming, and that's only starting to break down. And so it's no shock to me that when you talk to your your clients and retailers, they think live streaming is pointing you in the direction of a store. It's just we're so behind on that concept um, and that... The only way it's going to happen is through things like what Walmart is doing with their live streaming, where like these Instagram and social media followers are doing it on their own outside of the mainstream. Hey, Justin, were you involved at all with what Mixer, what Microsoft was doing with Mixer? And I thought it was actually quite surprising that they shuttered that and that they're partnering with Facebook. There's a startup that we've worked very closely with called Triver, and they really taught me about how you could, this was years ago, actually, how you could shop through games. You know, I mean, and it was this, you know, there's been like shoppable videos, you said, back in like the late 90s. But this was this whole idea that, you know, right, the consumer would be served up things they wouldn't even know, right? It would be this like kind of like unconscious, if you will, um, commerce almost. That's why I was just shocked at that decision. What are your thoughts and what do you see in terms of, right, where will we be shopping? Is it going to be in video games? Is it going to be buying off of our the latest Friends episode? What's going to happen there? So I think that's the really fundamental question. And I think you pointed to a couple different trends that we're now seeing. Of, um, and let's focus on, I think there's a couple different places to focus. There's people who are in the sort of, let's call it, uh, you know, sort of 12 to 34 demographic. I think that's one answer. And then I think you're talking about people who are in the sort of 34 or 40 plus, where are they going to be shopping? Um, and I think, so as it pertains to the first group of people, they are digital first. They are shopping already on Instagram. Even, you know, Instagram a year ago, didn't even have business tools on their website to enable people to buy directly from the Instagram. You had to put a link in that took you to a website or took you to an app. Like so, it's it's so so nascent right now. But where you will be shopping is basically everywhere you are, right? So if you think about Fortnite um, with concerts with Travis Scott or you know buying in-game stuff, you, you know we're. I think the platforms are finally developing the idea of, you know, why wouldn't you enable this to be the case? And so everybody, uh, I think last year, everybody wanted to be an entertainment. This year, everybody wants to be an, a, an e-tailer. That's my statement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what's so, uh, well, but what's fascinating, right? Yes, of course they want, well, digital first. I mean, you looked at the comps out of Walmart. I mean, almost the entire comp was digital first. So everyone at least wants to be digital first, right? And so 
was interesting. We were speaking to the CEO of, or the incoming CEO of Dix the other day. And right, I mean, she was talking about, it was first of all, amazing how quickly they pivoted. It was like two days uh, when the pandemic hit to this, you know, kind of idea of buy online, pick up in store, which is something we've talked about for many years. And then they're, this idea that they're using their stores as fulfillment centers. So even, right, so the customer can buy online, pick up in store, curbside, pick up, right, that whole bucket. Number two now, they can do contactless, you know, kind of shopping. So they're still checking themselves out for the most part. And the third is, right, they're using their stores as fulfillment centers. So this, all of this spun up this year. Now, I, I'm not sh- I don't think that it was the case at Dick's. Many retailers, though, added in all these extra costs because they were, I mean, I, I know retailers, you know, who, who will remain nameless, who've like hired several macro No, 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 no. Can't be remain nameless. <laughs> we, we have none of that. Listen, you don't get away with that if I'm on the phone here. Let's throw names out. That's what makes it fun. Call people out. Oh my gosh. So, uh, you know, we, let's just say we've seen some in the outdoor space, not dicks, who have added in all these excess costs. And so I'm like, you've got this opportunity, right? Because everyone's, you know, kind of talking about, oh, we've had to add all this labor. And then, oh, and, and one other topic is, what are they going to do about the hero pay? Right. So they're all right. They've all, right. Kroger tried to pull it back and got their hand slapped. So what's going to happen, you know, post pandemic? How can you pe- bring people's comp down? That doesn't work. I'm going to be silent until you start dishing the names. <laughs> uh, you're tough. I, I cannot. The, yeah. uh... <laughs> just use initials. How about that? We'll okay. Just pretend. It starts with a T. It's, and it, it rhymes with Margaret. <laughs> we'll go. We'll leave it there. All right. Talk about hero pay. Well, listen, I think here's the problem. As we all know in any industry, it is really tough to pivot a large organization, uh, you know, in any sector. Um, This COVID acceleration, quote unquote, has helped people because it's given people no options. You know, there's a classic scenario in business school speak, um, which my wife incessantly mocks me for, but since she's not here, Forget her. <laughs> we can we can mock you. It's all right. <laughs> yeah, I need someone else to mock me. So, so I think everybody in business understands the premise of a, a performance gap. You look at your numbers, you didn't hit them. You look at your expenses, you're over them. Right? Very simple, easy thing to identify. But when you start running a business and you're making profit and things seem to go be modestly well, it's incredibly hard to see the opportunity gap. And the opportunity gap is where you start thinking, we made $100 million this year, but really, could we have made $200 million? But who's willing, who's got the vision and leadership to deconstruct a business that's profitable when you're on a quarterly basis and your bonuses are tied to it, and then say, we should be actually making double this. Now, the nice thing about the pandemic, if there is a silver lining, is it basically said, whatever you were doing before is out. Your comp structure, your work from home thing, your inclusion policies, uh, all this has happened in a span of 10 months. And people had no choice. As my great, 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 great uncle, Hernan Cortez, who was the conquistador, when he came to the new world in search of gold, one night, someone came running to him and said, Captain, the ships are burning. And he said, good. And they said, what are you talking about? He goes, because I burned them. And they said, why? Because if you can't have a ship to escape, you're going to make it work. 
pandemic forced people to face the problems that they've been facing in terms of their CapEx, their employee compensation, their e-commerce solutions. And although it's been a miserable personal experience, it has transformed business because they would have never gotten around to this. Even look at Warner Brothers, which just announced that for the first time ever, an entire slate of three to five billion dollars worth of movies are going direct to consumer, which has Hollywood up in arms. That's the good news. That's the good news. What's the bad news? The bad news is what happens when we go back next year and people's bad tendencies start to creep back in. What do you think is at the top of that list? Well, I think that people, um, I'm not, so I think a lot of like green shoots have taken hold in organizations which have now seen e-commerce pop up and experimental things pop up and moving at a different speed. And then there's creep because there's going to be people that are going to say in a year from now, well, that was great, but like we like doing business. So some people are not going to continue on this path. They will get stopped because the world will return back to normal. And those are the people, uh, you know, listen, the same people that haven't innovated for a long time that needed COVID to jolt them out of their malaise are li- are possibly some of the people that will not continue to expand. They'll do what they're doing now, but that is not enough. The world has been unleashed. The floodgate has opened. They need to continue to do more. So maybe Walmart's doing live streaming today. Great. That should, you know, maybe they're doing, you know, mocking or imitating, not mocking, but imitating what China is doing. But they need to push further. They could be mocking. Who knows? (laughs) They they could be mocking. I mean, but I think the point is like, well, this is actually talk, but you talk about Walmart. They just got, let's just say, the gentleman who was running China for them just departed. So Dirk Vandenberg. So that's also quite interesting in terms of, and you look at their entire C-suite, many of these executives spent time in Asia, which I actually think has always given them a, a different perspective and, you know, has probably or even potentially driven some of the innovation that they've tried. I mean, they were for a large company fairly early on. They've just paired with TikTok. I think actually tonight they're uh, running something at 8 p.m. Eastern time. I mean, they've been, you know, for a large company, they've moved quickly, in my opinion. At the same time, I think it's also interesting, right, that they're starting to shed these assets, right, in Japan with Seiyu and with ASD in the UK. What do you think is going on there? Well, I think, listen, I think that unfortunately in many ways, uh, you know, in certain segments of the industry, in different industries, America is well behind a lot of things. I mean, our e-commerce business relative to things that are happening in China, as you know, from their singles day, um, you know, the the sheer volume of that, that effort um, has been tr- transformational in that economy. So there's no doubt that people with exposure to other markets like that, where you know they where commerce is digital, uh, smartphone based first, is is that experience will help a large organization. Um, as it pertains to sort of what I think is happening is, listen, I think that that a lot of people are recognizing if I'm a senior manager at Walmart and I've had a good career, that you could get a lot more done 
doing other things with smaller companies. Like you could go to Wall, you could go to TikTok and lead their e-commerce efforts and be at a multi-billion-dollar, hundred-billion-dollar valuation a lot quicker. Which is where I think a lot of these executives are yeah. going to land. It's so funny. You just yeah, I, I literally was just talking about this yesterday. Justin, because you're just talking- making that up just so you sound on track. So don't give, <laughs> exactly, like, don't, don't give me that like panel speak. <laughs> no, I no, was just we, talking about no, it no, yesterday. Because what we're seeing is a lot of folks I know in New York, let's say New York, New Jersey, who work for Walmart are currently being asked to relocate to Bentonville, which has always been right through the acquisition of Jet. They, you know, let's just say they expanded their people. And, you know, it, it in their organization, first of all, right, you know, the, the salaries in Bentonville are definitely, uh, let's just say, on sale versus the U.S. versus New York. And I think it's, you know, they've always been kind of a let's, you know, let's keep our senior leadership team together. And it's worked incredibly well for them. But a lot of their, let's just say, data scientists, et cetera, have been on the West Coast. But at the end of the day, just exactly what you said, how hard is it for them to attract the best in class talent? When, you know, even if they're getting paid in a mixture of equity and, you know, cash, that's definitely not as attractive as many of the other jobs that you can have, especially in the, let's call it the Silicon Valley area, right? Well, it's not even Silicon Valley. I mean, obviously that's, uh, you know, sort yes. of become a mecca. But I mean, I think that what, you know, with the stay-at-home order, with the fact that we'll probably be in this for the next six months, with companies now realizing that remote le- remote working is, you know, finally after 30 years of people talking about it is actually a viable model. I think that you're going to have a, you know, a, a huge migration of people to places that they want to be working for companies they don't, they want to be in. And people are going to push back and they're going to say, I don't want to be in Bentonville. I don't want to be in Silicon Valley where you so wildly expensive. You know, you're going to see migration to hubs like Austin and places like that. Yeah. With, uh, you know, Elon Musk leading the way there. I mean, it's, I, I have to say what we've learned, honestly, at CoreSight is you can work from anywhere. And, you know, we, we actually, we had to, unfortunately, during the pandemic, because India shut off access to WeChat overnight, we switched to Microsoft Teams and it was seamless, right? Nobody missed a beat. And if anything, it was easier in some ways to communicate globally. And, you know, you can then, I mean, I, I've thought about this from like a talent perspective, right? There's, there, you know, what we'd call in China, right? Third and fourth tier cities, right? Which are lower cost and let's just say a bit more rural. Why wouldn't we look for talent there, which is once again on sale? Absolutely. 100%. So the world is changing. Some people will continue to innovate. Some people will get stuck at where they are today. And some people will, I think, you know, like anything, suck it and go out of business. Well, I think that actually, I mean, it's interesting, you know, if we look back at this year, I mean, what happened with Asino? I mean, I think that had been on a trajectory for quite a while. Steinmart, same thing. You know, there there were definitely some surprises. And then also, too, the fact that, right, like Steinmart is coming back as, you know, like a digital only brand. I I think that we will see uh, many of these, unfortunately, it's ma- mainly specialty retailers who, and, and it starts to, like, we start to lose, not only do you lose the neighborhoods, I mean, my goodness, right now, if you, you know, for those of you who are in Manhattan, like myself, right? You're on Madison, you know, in the 60s and 70s and half of retail is gone, right? It is, to me, I am predicting the end of the flagship, right? Going back to this idea of like the rent you pay, right? If you're a, 
you know, corporate and you're hiring people, the rent you're paying them. But the same thing, like, why do you need a flagship going forward, especially if everything's so digital? So I think, listen, I think this is like one of those, uh, you know, grass is always greener. It is. Right. So it is. Right. So (laughs) Amazon, the biggest e-commerce place in the world, is now investing tons of money in actual physical locations, whether it's shopping stores or warehousing stores or Whole Foods. So, you know, right. So, so because there is a value to having a physical presence to allow you to experience things. So, uh, on the other hand, if you're stuck in a, you know, giant, you know, 2000 unit universe, you're trying to get shed all that real estate because you can vastly improve margins by being a commerce place. So it's not getting, it's like anything. You got to have a mix. And I think, you know, uh, right. So Peloton, which is great. I use it. It's a digital product, but they still have some studios. People like that experience. It creates brands. So I think it's always going to be a mix and it really depends on which end of the spectrum you're coming from. But if you're digital, you're going to want a physical presence. If you're locked into a lot of physical real estate, which is dying because of foot traffic, you're going to want a more digital presence, but you're still going to keep some place that someone can walk into. Yeah, no, I mean, but it goes back to, so I think, I mean, and Lizzie, if I put on my China hat, right, what we've seen there, especially post, well, post what does your now, China hat look like? It, uh, it looks strange. Describe good. it in color to me. Pink, pink with lots of sparkles, my friend. Okay. Um, and so I think that the, you know, if you look at the malls there and right, certainly much more experiential, but you've seen this amazing pull from like the, the KOLs, the influencers to live stream at malls, right? To have this kind of real experience, even during, you know, kind of lockdown. And that has, you know, not only created this, you know, kind of, I don't even know, it's not new retail, it's not next gen commerce, it's whatever comes after that, but it's this, you know, completely seamless, frictionless, phenomenal experience. And it's really fulfilling people in ways that we never would have expected. And I, I, I mean, Hey, in the U S we could be four, six, eight years away from that. Well, that's too bad that we're that far out from it, given what's happened over the last year. I mean, I would hope that we're a lot, you know, closer to it, but you know, I think things move in cycles. And, um, you know, if I had my Deborah Weinswick Corsite hat on, which is sparkly and pink too, um, (laughs) You know, I would I would agree with you. Yeah, and I I think that yeah. So one, th- you know, I want to talk about some other topics you're very familiar with, which is this whole idea of right. If we if we think about sports and this idea of right, what we're seeing with and because I think that some of the excess space could end up as like esports arenas, sports arenas. This right because what's going to happen when you have all of these? You know, we're going to go on deadmalls.com. And we're going to see an unprecedented number of you know these these malls available. Yeah. Could these turn into sports arenas? I mean, once again, what we see in China is a lot of the malls are anchored by you know esports arenas, which is you know obviously an incredibly hot sport there. What do you think? So you know, I'm a little bit mixed on this because on the one hand, obviously there's a lot of dead space that's got a lot of physical. Uh, you know, it's got it's. It's good, but I guess the question is: If I was building an esports arena or venue, would I want to start with a twenty-five-year-old mall facility? You know, it, it, wherever it is, which is probably not exactly where I want it to be, um, 
or would I want to just build it from scratch or start with build out? Because, you know, there's been a real estate boom. And, you know, certainly where I live in LA, there's a monster real estate boom here uh, on the commercial side of things. Uh, So I'm not sure, you know, what... I mean, a lot of those things, I know people talk about wanting to redevelop them, but I feel like the people talking about wanting to redevelop them are just really the only people are the people who own them. The people, you know, you're not, I, are you seeing people who are like running in to buy, you know, closed out malls and do stuff with it? Are you really seeing that much happening? We're not. I think that the, you know, what we're seeing is landlords trying to, utilize the space in their centers as dark stores. And so yep. you, right, you've got the professional shopper in the dark store. You've got your customer in the real store. And this way you can focus on this digital first in a whole new way, right? They've, I, I've actually been really impressed with the landlords, especially as, you know, all hell has come loose. And they have also, right, spun up these kind of um, parking spaces dedicated to, buy online, pick up in store. And then we're even seeing some of the malls, right? Enclosed malls where they've, I mean, we came up with this term like a year ago. I've not heard it outside of course site, but what the heck, which is buy, you know, Bopum, buy online, pick up in the mall. And they're I, I think the reason you haven't heard anyone say it, because I don't think people want to say that word. It, <laughs> that, I think it, that's probably why no one else is saying it. Because to be honest with you, it sounds like you're either talking about a clown or some type of new a CBD product. Hey, which, uh, you know, I, so it's funny. I got to tell you, speaking of. Or do you work for the federal government? Because they're really good at coming <laughs> up with bad acronyms. <laughs> so, but if, well, if you think about, right, all this blank real estate, hey, especially in Manhattan, we're all going to need it, right? I think you end up seeing dispensaries, healthcare, and I mean, you know, you know, neighborhoods are going to completely change. And that's, I mean, I've read so many interesting white papers around right, the importance of retail in neighborhoods, yep. not only from a safety perspective, but right, that keeps the community together. I mean, I got to, oh, to tell you this fascinating stat and then love your, um, so Placer AI, they have amazing data uh, where, you know, they're let's say pinging phones and other things to understand traffic patterns. I spoke to them this week and they said that there has been, if you look at the Upper East Side of Manhattan, which is where I do spend some of my time, that there is a that was a name drop. That was that. There's, did that fall right out of your pocket? That fell out. That fell out of your pocket. I have my pink sparkly hat. D- um, d- d- next yeah. thing you're going to mention something about Oprah or Michelle Obama. I got it. And Go ahead. Definitely, definitely. The but they're saying that sixty um, percent of people who are on the Upper East Side are not here during the pandemic, and so whether they've left Manhattan permanently or they're just you know at one of their other kind of properties, that is fascinating because. How many of those people come back? What happens to some of these major cities, right? Do we, do people move to, you know, less urban, more rural? And they're like, gosh, life is so much easy. I read, I read this really interesting article the other day and I was talking about this like kind of cognitive drain you have from I mean, literally just like walking around Manhattan because you're so overstimulated, maybe less these days, but you know, certainly a, a call to the suburbs if there ever was one. Well, let me leave you with this because I got Spielberg on the other line and he wants, he has, he's, he wants he's you. Go, he's like, he, Justin, I need you right now. Yeah, uh, he, he needs to ask me about this live streaming something from his ranch. Here's what I'd say about this. 
you know, Aristotle once said, all great things flow into the city. And although I believe that there's certainly a reckoning and a reset on city life, that there will always be a call to people who want to congregate and want to be part of something. And I think New York has gotten out of control with its development. And and I think this is a good reset to maybe change the nature of what's being built, that, you know, that giant complex on the west side where the... Um, where the train station used, to, where the you know train yards used to be, is a great example of over exuberance and under sort of thought as to what we need, and a lot of that you know should go away. But all great things flow into the city. So I'm an urbanite. I grew up in New York City, and I believe that people will go and flow to back to cities, whether it be New York, Chicago, or build up new cities like Seattle or Austin. So I leave you with that thought that you know. The world is in flux, but it's always it's always in flux. It just happens to be this moment has had us all locked down, and we've had a lot of time to think about it. But it's exciting, and there's tons of possibility. And I know that CoreSight in particular has its finger on the pulse. And if I was looking for information and data on what to think about retail, commerce, personality-driven, uh, new ideas, I would come to you guys. So anybody listening, do yourself a favor, get on the CoreSight website to listen to their data, listen to their research. They know what they're talking about. Well, Justin, what do I say after that? Thank you so much. And uh, we look forward to having you again on soon. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here first. We talked about not only data, real estate, the future of retail, shoppable video, and so much more. Please join us again soon. And uh, Justin, thank you so much. You're welcome. And I expect to see a picture of that, what the Deb Winesweek hat looks like. Please post that on Instagram for me. <laughs> Take care, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us to literally go to the moon and back with uh, our special guest, Justin Hochberg. Uh, we had a very unique opportunity. He has an amazing background in all things Hollywood, uh, having worked at Microsoft, produced The Contender and The Apprentice with Donald Trump. And he really does have his finger on the pulse of all things retail and real estate. Uh, thanks so much again for joining us. Uh, please go to coresite.com for additional information on our reports and also for upcoming podcasts. Have a great day.